Hello, and welcome to The Roundtable, a Next Generation Politics podcast. Next Generation Politics is leading a movement of young people committed to building bridges across various divides. I'm Kanisha, and this week, Indica, Madeline, Isaiah, and I joined Shereen Crawford and James Brodick from the Center for Court Innovation to do a deep dive into the criminal justice system in our country. James and Shereen define criminal justice as the issue of our lifetime and their motivations to reform it. As New Yorkers, they see a lot of liberal reforms being made to the criminal justice system. At the CCI, James and Shireen aim to focus on prevention and alternatives to incarceration. We discussed how real change happens in communities and that community-based organizations, education, and accountability is what we need for real change to be made. Hi, everyone. My name is Inika Kodestane, and I'm almost rising senior from New Jersey. And in addition to being on the podcast, I'm also co-editor-in-chief of the Next Generation Politics blog. And today I'm really interested in talking about, you know, the future of the courts and how the justice system plans on changing and whether youth will have a role in that. Hi, I'm Kanisha. And today I'm really excited to talk about, you know, community engagement and initiatives surrounding that. The work that our guests do is truly inspirational. And I'd love to learn about, you know, the ins and outs of these community development programs, as well as everyone's vision for our New York City communities and the future of our city. Hi, my name is Madeline and I'm a high school sophomore from Brooklyn, New York. I'm a Y voter and a civic fellow in addition to being a podcaster. And I'm really passionate about community building. And recently, I participated in a restorative justice training session at my school. So I think it'll be really interesting to apply what I've learned there uh, to our conversation here today. Hi, my name is Isaiah Taylor. I'm currently a high school senior going to school in Queens, New York, graduate uh, this month. But uh, I'm really interested in how prosecution in regards to current social matters and how it sets a precedent for the future and time to come. I'm Shereen Crawford. I am co-director of our criminal justice programs at the Center for Court Innovation. What brings me to this work and this career is what I often refer to as I see it as the civil rights movement of our time. Addressing the injustices and equities in the criminal justice system is something I just feel really passionate about. It's close to my heart. And I think it really speaks to the humanity of society of where we can have successes and do better in this area and transform and change the system. I think we will all be better for it. I'm James Burdick, and I oversee a department at the Center for Court Innovation called Community Development and Crime Prevention. I'm not really sure what brought me to the work, but I will tell you what keeps me doing the work. It's this sense that we are all in this together, really trying to figure out these complex issues but really driving community change from the perspective of the people who have been most disinvested over the course of many, many years. And I think what really excites me is, frankly, talking to a group of young people like yourselves, knowing how bright the future is and and, and really trying to figure out how we could start to create platforms for voices that haven't historically haven't been able to not only talk about the issues, but really give them more tools to be able to present solutions. And so that's what keeps me going every day. If you could give an overview of your current perception of the courts, like if there's anything you want to change, if there's anything you think works, and just your opinion on like the current status of our justice system, just like more broadly. I'm going to start local in in New York City, where I spend a lot of my time thinking and working, doing and interacting with the stakeholders of the court system. 
And I think, you know, in many ways, you could say New York is an outlier. There's a lot of really amazing progressive work happening in, in the court space in New York. That's not to say that there are severe imperfections, but when you think about things like the Close Rikers campaign and the goal to get 3,000 cases or individuals detained in Rikers Island compared to where it was 10, 15, 20 years ago, a large part of those wins have come through the reforms of the court most recently you know, the bail reform, supervised release, which the Center for Court and Innovation is involved in. And then a large part of our work in transforming how that system responds to individuals coming through it is what we often refer to as alternatives to incarceration. But I like to start saying alternatives to conviction, because what we're seeing more and more is that incarceration is not the default as much for our five county prosecutors in New York City. And what the Center for Court Innovation is able to do in that space is really engage people in a more holistic, meaningful way than the traditional ideas of probation, nothing, or jail, but being able to meet people often where they're at and offer alternatives that look like working with a social worker getting engaged with services they may need around housing, employment, you know, if there's food insecurity. And people don't typically think of that as a court response, that those are, you know, some unique ways in which the court system is responding to individuals coming into it. And, you know, we can critique, right, that that isn't necessarily the way that people should get those services, right? You shouldn't have to have an arrest. And one of the ways I'll, I'll kind of give an example of where I think we are able to move away from that is project research that's been implemented, you know, citywide in New York City, and it's a pre-arraignment diversion program. So meaning people do not have to come to court, they do not have to appear before a judge, but they're able to engage with our teams, our staff at the Center for Court Innovation, you know, nonprofit organization. And there's a range of different activities. It could be meeting one-on-one with a social worker. It could be part of a social service, you know, workshop or group. It could be an arts intervention and processing what brought you to the arrest, but also what does this experience mean for you and what other resources might you need? And then what the, the local prosecutors have decided to do with those cases now is decline to prosecute them, meaning there, there is no case anymore. It is dismissed. There's no record of their arrest or the fact that they had a court case. So just a really different outlook on, on how to approach the criminal justice system and, and how it works. And so I have positive outlook in, in most cases, and I see these sort of things growing nationally. And, and Shereen, I, I just wanted to add, I mean, the reason why the Center for Court Innovation exists is because I think we have all acknowledged the flaws of our system. You know, we solve problem-solving courts because we've identified there's problems. And, you know, what's really interesting in the way that we're, we're operating as an organization is we're talking about within the courts, how do we reform a system that exists? But at the same time, when we talk about community-based work, How do we transform neighborhoods so we can start shrinking this system that we know has been flawed for a long time? And so we're trying to do both things at the same time. And some people would argue whether, you know, should you should you rock with the system? Should that be the people that you partner up with? The truth of the matter is, is we've made some unbelievable changes in this city in regards to reducing the use of incarceration. And at the same time, as an organization, we also recognize the harms that the system has put on brown and black communities, how poverty and generational poverty exists and continues to come through our doors. And to Shireen's point, the court system is ill-equipped to handle 
those types of cases. And we really need to be working in communities much earlier. And so that's why it's really nice to work with Shireen because hopefully we get them way before they get to the court. And if we don't, we still can serve them when they wind up in the system. So this is really how I think as an organization we've transformed over the last 25 years. So could you, you know, walk us through how, if at all, communities work with the government and how do you think in the future the relationship between New York's huge bureaucracy and underserved communities should develop? What's interesting is that government and communities that have been disinvested and don't trust each other, right? How do you move past trying to solve problems when there's a lack of trust? And again, I think about the role that we try to play, and I don't want to make this a commercial for the Center for Court Innovation, but I will make it a commercial for community-based organizations who know how to act as that bridge between understanding what government can and should be doing, understanding the challenges that are facing our neighborhoods, and trying to translate those two things to come up with solutions that make sense. And so when we're talking about restorative justice and getting people into circles and really thinking about collective problem solving, until we build trust, the rest of that stuff won't happen. And so, you know, we make a very conscious effort to do two things, to be in the places that has been disinvested in for as long as I've been a New York resident, which is pretty much my whole life. And we work with people who've been most harmed by the system. And as a result, we want to get the voices of folks who have touched systems and these systems to figure out how do we solve these problems. And I feel like the role that we play is building that trust because you're not going to break down a bureaucracy, but when people can work with people, there's opportunities for change to happen. And so I really do believe that being in the neighborhoods and holding government accountable for what they can and should be doing is the beginning steps for people to have confidence that things can change. You know, for example, if you go into a neighborhood that's high in crime, I would also guarantee you, you'll see worse sanitation services. You'll also see other issues that the city has disinvested in that has nothing to do with public safety, but it it shows everything about how government has let these communities down. And so really the role that we're trying to play when we talk about community-based problem solving is government accountability, community voice, bringing it together to solve local issues. So that's, that's some of the ways that we think about it. All of that, and then it has to keep happening. You know, James referenced the fact that the the Center for Court Innovation now has been around for 25 years. This collaborative model of bringing together government and community is something that relentlessly engaging over and over and being at the table, this idea of holding government accountable. And I think of Midtown Community Court and Red Hook Community Justice Center as, you know, initial examples of that. And then much of the work that is carried out by James's teams and, and colleagues in the CDCP work is the evolution of that over time and the investment in community and going back to government and stakeholders and reiterating the importance of this accountability. A topic that's on a lot of people's minds, young people included, would be the conditions of prisons as a whole and the structure and then the role that it plays in actually reforming somebody. And speaking of sanitation, which James mentioned, I read about the conditions of the MCC down in Manhattan, about the uh, sanitation conditions down there and how it was disgusting and unhumane. And I thought that it really speaks to the lack of accountability for government to really put spending into community reconstruction and actual reform in terms of dealing with criminals. So I was wondering what you guys' thoughts were, because I know me, when we started washing our hands, I I was so relieved to know that, you know, the prisons are very dirty like that. And also it, it doesn't really reform criminals. It really just holds them there. 
like I said, it really speaks to the lack of accountability. So we're just wondering what you guys' thoughts were on that. You know, the Department of Corrections is the biggest oxymoron I've ever heard of my in my life, right? Like, like the whole idea of somebody going to jail is that in prison, there is supposed to be this opportunity for rehabilitation. And clearly that hasn't happened. It's why over and over and over again, we see that when people come back home, the likelihood of them getting rearrested, the likelihood of, it's all of the collateral consequences of going to prison, not only having a record, but also the lack of rehabilitation that happened. And then you returning back to the same communities where this all started in the first place. So it's inhumane in so many levels not even talking about the cleanliness of it and the abuse that happens within the prison system. It is really, I believe, the reason why both of us have gotten into this work to say the last thing we want to do is send people to prison because it's such a failure. But we can't take on every battle, but it's something that has clearly failed us. If we are sending people to jails and prisons, that they have to be safe, they have to be clean, they have to be humane. And you can look at international examples of of ways in which this can be done if this is what your community and society chooses to do. Putting that there and then, you know, thinking about the role, as you mentioned, Isaiah, the the prosecutor is, and as James called me out, I am a former prosecutor. um, So I have some opinions on this too. I don't want to be overly optimistic, but what I have seen is an awareness within many, not all, um, prosecutors, the offices, the elected officials, that is moving us in the direction, you know, I think we'd all like to be of, of sending less people to prison and jail. And you see that when you see campaigns that are taken on by Color for Change. You see that when you see prosecutors like Larry Krasner in Philadelphia reelected, even with much controversy about some of the progressive reforms that, that he has pushed in his office. I had the opportunity to be a part of starting the Institute for Innovation and Prosecution. There are a number of entities like that around the country now that are helping prosecutors build the tools to do better, to look at people, not numbers, not convictions, not numbers of years in a sentence, but what actually makes society and communities safer. And I think that's a, it's a long road ahead, but I do, I do see things that have happened now that didn't exist before. And one of them is people are paying attention to who their elected prosecutor is and they're voting and they're going out and they're trying to understand the politics of that office. There's prosecutors, one who hired me, who sat in office for over 30 years. And I think, frankly, you know, a lot of that is folks weren't paying any attention. If, even if the justice system impacts your life, um, it is not a, a player that, that a lot of people have traditionally paid attention to. And so I think by paying more attention to prosecutors and how they're elected and who's elected is a huge part of transforming the justice system. We always talk about the progressive prosecutors and the people who are thinking about it who are way ahead of it. But I, I'm very proud to say that we're getting requests from places that are more conservative historically, whether it's Queens or Staten Island, who are saying, you know what, I want to do better. I want to come up with other solutions to keep our community safe. And that's that's the thing. This is not a walking contradiction. We're not saying what you're doing is bad. We all have the same end outcome. The end outcome we want is safe communities. It's how we go get to the safe communities is where we differ. And so when we have a McMahon in Staten Island who is saying, hey, we would like to replicate Red Hook in Staten Island, that that is humongous. That actually speaks to the impact that we're making versus when we just talk about the progressive folks who many of us on this probably say, oh, they already get it. When you start getting the folks who historically in jurisdictions 
who maybe struggled with this and now they're moving in our direction. That's a really exciting way. And whether you're doing it because it's the right thing to do, whether you're doing it because it saves money and we clearly know how much money it costs to incarcerate people, the point of the matter is, is people are seeking solutions outside of traditional prosecution. And prosecutors are really working hard to utilize expertise outside of the legal profession, whether it's social workers and mental health professionals. It speaks volumes to how far they have come as a profession to say, here's what we're really good at and here's where we need supports. And that, that to me really speaks volumes. I was just curious on what you think the role of public pressure has had like on changing courts. You were saying that a lot more people are becoming aware of who exactly they're electing and suddenly they have more of like a stake in, in what is going on and how changes are being implemented. So what kind of impact do you think that typical people are having on things now that they're more aware? Public pressure is a double-edged sword in many ways, right? So the idea of voting and being more informed and, and is, is so critical. Information is, is really valuable. I do think that sometimes my concern, and, I, and, I, and I'm saying this from, from being on the criminal justice system for a long time, sometimes the knee-jerk reaction is, this is bad, we need to get rid of it and do something else. And nobody spends the time planning what the something else is. And then what happens as a result is it, it fails. Because inevitably, you could tell me something doesn't work, but you have to seek solution. And when it fails, the criminal justice system is this pendulum, and it swings. And right now, if you read any news article, it's, it's about fear. And people, when you come to public safety, if they feel scared, regardless of data, regardless of what we can tell them, they are going to say, we need to be more critical, use more punishment. So I would say that I love that in many ways our communities are more informed. What I would love to see is that now that we have more information, when we talk about whether it's reallocating funds that go to police, to, for us to really think about what would that do to make systematic change, not just say defund something, but defund something to fund what, and what is the impact that we hope to make. And so those are some of the things that I'm excited about, and also some of the things that gets me very, very nervous because it's almost an all or nothing thing right now in our, in our society. It's either black or white, right or wrong. And we live in a world that's very gray. And, and I think we've lost that. And, and I think it's very critical that when we are talking about things that aren't working, that we spend more time planning out solutions. It makes me think about how like our educational system also has a lot to play in when it comes to criminal justice reform. And it's bringing me back to when I think James said, how there's a lack of trust between the government and the community. And I think that there's a similar lack of trust between students and teachers, which I think then can end up leading into issues within criminal justice. I remember Shireen called criminal justice the civil rights movement of our time. So how do you think that education is affecting this movement and how can it affect it in a more positive way? Like what can we do in schools to transform the system in a different way? It is really, I believe, about the education of what the system is. I recently was talking to a friend who works in education, and she shared with me a colleague had left her job to start a school, and the school was rooted in Black identity. And so when you learn math, you learned it through talking about things 
related to slavery. It all kind of went back. And I was like, oh, what an interesting concept. And thinking about the history and the context of how government works, how our systems work, how we got to where we are that is just absent from you know, the textbooks and, and, and not just the history textbooks, but all of them. And that, you know, lack of trust that, that, that James has referenced, you know, that, that sits in black and brown communities is, you know, when parts of, of your being are erased from, from people learning about you and your culture, then people dismiss it. It's not part of my life. I don't see it. I don't hear it. More education on these issues in, in school at all ages. These things are issues that we should start talking about with our young people from, from the beginning. It's beyond education. It is, it is when we think about communities where education fails the most. When we think about neighborhoods where there's the highest levels of poverty, when we think about late neighborhoods where there's the most public safety concerns, what they all have in common is the most, and I hate to say this because this is not an insult, but it's a critique. It's usually the most inexperienced, most unprepared professionals trying to solve the problem. We send the youngest beat officers right out of the police academy to Brownsville. And we expect a 22-year-old police officer who is going to deal with a 17-year-old Brownsville resident who they don't trust each other. And we think that the situation is going to be diffused. It's, it's moronic. And we do the same thing to our teachers. We send teachers into classrooms where we have kids who are hungry, kids who are dealing with trauma. They're not social workers. They're ill-equipped to handle these types of issues that are in their classrooms. When we say what more can be done, until we start addressing people's basic human needs and understanding the trauma that folks are bringing to these situations and that the professionals that we put in front of them are ill-equipped to serve them, it's not going to get better. I guarantee, I could just tell from this conversation that you may not be so happy with your teachers, but I could tell you they're probably really good teachers. You may disagree with the things that they say. That's, that's education to me. But when I have classrooms that I've seen where a, a young teacher can't even deal with many of the young people because of other issues that are outside of teaching, that to me is very problematic. And we really have to support our professionals who are doing this work. And frankly, I think we have to pay them more. We have to put more experienced professionals in more challenging areas. You would never have a bank teller closing a merger deal, but yet we basically have young professionals trying to serve our most challenging communities. And that to me is the biggest disservice we do. Something has to be done to address this lack of unity. And even though I think a lot of people do recognize that there's this huge disconnect when we see police officers, when we see even, you know, as you were saying, like social workers, school officials, a lot of times you see a disconnect with them and the community that they're supposed to be serving. Yet, even though I think a lot of people do recognize this, we're living in such a divided political climate. So how do you think the political climate has shaped criminal justice reform? And how do you think it needs to change in order to actually allow for reform to happen in the coming years? It is this idea of unity and compromise. I, I mean, we've become more and more divided and divisive. And we live in the gray, you know, in our day-to-day -day lives. We live in the gray in the reality of how the system works, but yet the approach by, you know, elected officials, even by community sometimes is this very black and white. It's it's one or the other. I think if we can't find more ways to come together, which may at times require us 
to compromise. We might not always get everything that we want. You know, I, I appreciate the abolitionist movement around criminal justice system, but as a society, I, I don't believe that we're we're there. You know, I, I think that you know it's an admirable goal to to set that out. If we don't start to figure out some of the in between, you know, how does this look? How does it work? If we start to pull it apart and do things differently, you know, it can't just simply be one or the other. And I don't unfortunately have the answer for that of how, how we find that unity, other than you know. Much of what I feel like James and I get to do in our work is when you bring people together and they can see other people's realities, perspectives, hear from them. And then also that those those folks are part of, you know, something we, we try to do very often is bringing in the voice of the most affected people to help make decisions. You know, hopefully we move from help make decisions to actually making the decisions. And I think that's a way to, to start that. But there's a lot of work to be done there. Even when two parties disagree, there's always common ground. I, I do believe, right, you can talk about public safety, but it's the how. You, you know, again, what I'm most proud of is we have been supported from Giuliani to de Blasio and everybody in between. Those mayors do not see eye to eye on almost anything. But what they do see eye to eye on it is that there is clearly an understanding that there needs to be a group in that middle who can operate and facilitate. And I think what I would ask from you as young people is obviously go where your passion is, go for your fight, do what you think is right. But I do think that it's very important for some of us to work from the inside out. What people are doing stuff on the outside and really pushing the envelope, you also need to have some stewards on the inside. And, and, and I'll tell you, moving the ship is frustrating. It takes a long time to turn, it's exhausting. But over the course of time, it does work and it may not work at the speed. And, you know, as you get old, like me, time flies. And when you're young, time feels very slow. I can't begin to tell you that if I close my eyes when I'm talking to prosecutors, I would think I was talking to defense attorneys 20 years ago. And so I would just challenge you all to say, what role do you want to play when you think about the systems who are not working for young people? What role could, do you want to play both on the outside and potentially on the inside? That really is where some of this will start, is that these voices need to be in multiple places and not just at the edges. That's all for today with Next Gen Politics. Special thanks to our editor, Clara Medina, our producer, Sanda Balaban, and to Jeremiah Hunt for our opening and closing music. Please check out our website at www.nextgenpolitics.org for links related to what we've discussed and to find out more about our work. And please recommend us to your civic-minded friends or to your friends you'd like to become more civic-minded. This is Maggie Yu for Next Gen Politics.